Welcome to a very special episode of Screen Cleaning. It is yet again a Screen Cleaning Hall of Famer. How many times are you going to play that little uh, stinger there, Cole? Oh, a lot. Okay. <laughs> See, there's there's a trick to this. Uh, our, our producer Avery's been helping out in the most recent episodes, and I've been, you know, he's been sitting behind the board and doing doing the running of the show. But for this show in particular, I'm back in the driver's seat because there's a subtle line that you need to toe up to when it comes to the number of times that you play the screen cleaning Hall of Fame sound effect. So you're committing to that word "settle." The the key is to play it enough that it's hilarious, but not so much that it gets annoying. Okay. And All I feel right. like I sit right on that line when we have our screen cleaning hall episodes. Thank <laughs> you. I feel like we're saying Beetlejuice again. When I get to a fifth time, that's when okay. All the right. trumpet well, monster comes. Welcome to Screen Cleaning. This is the show that shines a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. And every once in a while, we take a step back from the headlines and the new movies that are coming out in movie theaters or the new TV shows that are debuting. And we take a look at some films that we've seen previously that mean a little extra to us, right? Not necessarily our favorite movies of all time. But these are films that it's basically like we're doing a panning for good segment, but that takes up an entire episode. And and we spend just our whole hour with you today diving deep into two movies that we haven't found excuses to talk enough about. And I'm predicting that something is going to happen during this episode, Cole. I don't know what exactly, but I'm predicting that it's going to take place in the recording studio with three microphones by Cole Wissinger, Avery Otzbuck, and Jeff Simpson. Very good lead-in to the who, (laughs) where, and what conceit that is the movie based on the board game, Clue. Now, Clue, you're going with Clue, right, Cole, from the 1980s? I cannot believe that it's taken me this long to gush about how much I love the movie Clue. So... Okay, we've got to take a step back because when this movie came out, I obviously did not see it in movie theaters, and we'll get to some of the movie theater hijinks that they tried to pull off. Um, But uh, I obviously did not see this in the movie theaters, and when this movie came out, I would imagine that people that did go see it in the movie theaters thought that what a preposterous idea – to base a movie off of a board game. I know the feeling because I went to theaters to see the movie Battleship that was based on a board <laughs> game. And I'll tell you, I had a slightly uh, less good experience than the first time I saw Clue in my life. In fact, every time I go see a movie based on a video game or a property, anything that isn't a book, right? Books have starts and finishes and plot. Anytime you base a movie on anything that's not a book, it falls flat, except for that one time in the 80s that they got all the most hilarious people in the world into one room, into one house. Now, wait a minute. Clue. You said you had a less than good experience the first time watching Clue. No, no, no. The first time watching Battleship. Oh, got it. Got it. I was yeah. going to say, who doesn't love Clue even the first time they've watched it? Nope. Or yeah, exactly. the fifth time they've watched it? The 117th. See, Clue makes my Hall of Fame particularly because it is the single movie that I have seen the most times in my life. I don't know what that number is because when I was five years old, I wasn't keeping tally marks for every time we watched it. But I still have the VHS tape sitting on my shelf 
that was in my grandma's house. And that that's where I got the most run out of it. Um, and then it was like a gift to me when they gave me that tape. It was a relic for my childhood. And so I still watch it. I watched it this week just as an, the, the, doing this show was another excuse to go back and watch Clue. I watch it at least a couple times a year as an adult. And I watched it a couple times a week when I was a kid. One of the most re- – if, if rewatchability is one of the categories, one of the criteria you put on your list of what makes a movie great – Clue is a five out of five when it comes to rewatchability. This is an interesting pick, too, because this is one that clearly uh, became more beloved as the years went on because when it came out, it actually lost money. It didn't, yeah. even, it didn't even make back the, the main budget of the movie, not even counting the marketing that must have gone into this movie. When we do a screen cleaning Hall of Fame, we look up on the internet just some facts, some trivia, and... The uh, most obvious fact, the most repeated, the the one that Jeff has been alluding to thus far is that when Clue was released in theaters, it has the three endings, but they only picked one ending and they showed it like it was supposed to be that at the end. And then you wouldn't really get an ending ending, right? We don't get what we have now. And so you'd have to go back and see it another time to get a different ending, but maybe you just get the same one again. And it was a gimmick and it did not work. I think for me as a kid going to the movie theaters, I think that would have worked on me because I remember when Indiana Jones, the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland was opening up. I was a kid in Anaheim, California, and there were all these rumors that there are these three different ways, three different doors that your cart or your carriage, whatever you want to call it, your vehicle would go through. And depending on which one you went into, there could be like an infinite number of possible tracks that you could take. No, no, really, you just go through one of three doors and then it goes on to the same track. But I believed it as a kid, and this would have definitely worked on me, and I would have gone back and seen it. But their but major it didn't flaw was... work on the parents that had the money to sure. pay for them. What if you were going to see Clue and you were hoping to see, let's say the first time you saw it, you saw ending A. You went to go see it again, hoping to see ending B or C, but you got stuck with ending A again. That would probably infuriate me a little bit. So Miss Scarlet definitely was the killer is what you're saying. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. But, Cole, let me ask you this, though. I know you love the movie Clue. Do you actually love the board game Clue? Yeah, that might be why I loved the movie. Or maybe it's vice versa. Again, I cannot remember the first time I really watched Clue because I was so young. But we played a lot of board games in my house, and Clue was a staple of it. And... Clue Jr. and Clue FX and all the different iterations. Like I have we have in my house at home at least three different copies from three different eras with three different, you know, artwork on the front of the box of Clue. Clue, of course, what North American audiences, what I assume that our podcast audience mostly called it. Cluedo is what it's called everywhere else (laughs) in the world. Do you know why? Cluedo is a amalgam of the word clue because you try to find clues to see who done it. And Ludo, which is a Latin phrase meaning I play, to play. And Ludo is basically what in England they call their Parcheesi, like a famous just board, very simple kind of board game where you got four characters trying to get them home. Sorry does this, Trouble does this, Parcheesi does this. And so they have a board game called Ludo. And Clue, a a Clue kind of board game, became Cluedo. Interesting. Let me ask you this. What type of Clue player are you? Are you the type that... Let's say you figured it out. You you know you're going to make your guess. Are you the kind that has to race to the middle of the board game, or do you just guess right wherever you are on the board? No, no, no. You have to get to the room where it was actually done. 
Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so if, if you're over in, like, the lounge, right, you can't take the secret passage, but you need to get to my the life, billiard I've room been living one long if it had lie, been done Cole. in the billiard room. That's where you need to make your accusation. <laughs> and, I mean, there are different iterations of the game. I've got one where there are clue cards that are basically, like, little cheats to help the game go by faster, you know, which is great for my kids. Ugh. My kids are, like, very resistant to change or things that they haven't tried. So when they saw, what are these clue cards? We're not going to play with that. But then when we started playing with them, they're like, oh, yeah, the clue cards. I got a clue card. Anyway. Um, I, I take the little notes. No, I, I wasn't lying when I say meticulous. <laughs> I have my little card. And normally people just put X's down when they've seen it. No, if if Jeff was the one that showed me, oh, me too. Miss Scarlet, I put a J there. Yeah. If you didn't have Miss Scarlet or the wrench or the ballroom, then I'll put like a little J overway on the left saying like you definitely don't have those yeah and then i figure out and then i mean by the end of the game usually i know which five cards i had which five cards you had which five cards you know i i take clue very very seriously now let me ask you an ethical question cole are you the type i don't cheat clue player that let's say you're playing with multiple players Mm -hmm. and let's say uh avery is showing you that he's got mrs peacock okay yes um, she didn't but do it. I accidentally catch a glimpse of that card that he's showing you. Are you going to mark that off on your list as well? I never. So as with all good ethical questions, I make sure I don't put myself in the position to have to make it because you hide your eyes completely. If Avery, and, and this comes from like having a blind mother mm. also where we would put Braille on the clue cards. And oh, so you cool. could easily pass like face down so she would not see. Um, or if. If you're, if I'm showing you, I could just hold it up because she can't see it anyway. But anyway, you, we would like hide our eyes completely if it's two people. You know, if you're not Look the person, you, you, you probably like didn't duck under the table. You make sure you're not even close to seeing. You probably didn't uh, try to sneak out in the middle of your room on Christmas night, then, right? To see if Santa Claus had come yet. Absolutely not, because it's all Good about that you. surprise Christmas you. afternoon when I would eventually wake up. I'm somewhere in the middle. When I'm playing with my kids, eh, I'm gonna mark. If I, I can't unsee it, <laughs> is the thing. You know, <laughs> Jeffrey Simpson cheats when playing with six year olds. I didn't That's what mean <laughs> to see it, but. I cannot unsee it, so I'm so just going to mark if it If you down. can't unsee it, then you have to get to another room, and you have to put yourself in a position where you can see it. You have to guess that it was Miss Peacock, Mrs. Peacock, <laughs> so that you can see it the right way, so well, then usually, you can mark it down. Usually when you say, I, I couldn't unsee something, right? It's a, There's a bad connotation to it, but unlike the bad connotation, I can't unsee this movie, but I think that's a good thing because... Once you see this movie, it sticks with you, and for a good reason. I can play it in my mind right now if you want. (laughs) I can still, as I'm watching it, quote every single line because it sticks with you. And when you've watched something as often as I've watched Clue the movie, you will naturally just remember it so well. But the lines are so amazingly quotable. Normally when we do a Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame, I write down you know a few quotes that I can talk about when we're on the podcast. This one, every line is a quotable line. Yeah. I want to get to the the amazingly talented comedic cast here in just a minute, but I want to I want to talk about the director really quick, who is Jonathan Lynn. Now, Jonathan Lynn, he has made films like The Whole Nine Yards, Sergeant Bilko, The Distinguished Gentleman with Eddie Murphy. So some bigger comedic. Oh, and of course, probably uh, most notable among all of his directing credits is My Cousin Vinny, an Academy Award winning film. Um, But his very first movie was Clue. And when he was approached about directing this movie, 
he was very much into the theater scene and directing uh, plays. And so when they asked him, he was kind of like, uh, are you sure you want me to direct this movie? And he did. And boy, oh boy, is it a funny movie. Part of that has to do with the fact that they assembled one of the best comedy casts in any comedy that I've seen. And and in order for that cast to bring out the most, you have to have great writing. And John Landis, a famous writer in the, oh, throughout yeah. the 80s as well. Animal House. He was supposed to do the directing too before they turned it over, but he left to do Spies Like Us instead. Oh, this is a much better movie Probably than Spies Like Us. Probably regrets it a little bit. But yeah, the <laughs> cast took that writing and amplified it. So you've you've got Tim Curry as Wadsworth, the butler, who is inviting all of these mysterious people that are using aliases into his uh, employer's home. Madeline Kahn, who has one of the best moments in this movie with her flames on the side of her face rant that she goes on. Flames. (laughs) Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown, of course, who plays Professor Plum. By the way, the same year. 1985, Flu and Back to the Future both come out. Michael McKeon, who was on Better Call Saul. He was in a bunch of the mockumentaries, uh, including This is Spinal Tap. Martin Mull, who is uh, was a big product of the 80s, was also a cohort of Fred Willard, the late Fred Willard. Um, Leslie Ann Warren plays Miss Scarlet. Yes. Eileen Brennan plays Mrs. Peacock. And you mentioned Madeline Kahn as Mrs. White. All three of those female leads were Academy Award nominated for Best Supporting Actress at, great, at one point in their Great cast. Careers. And boy, oh boy, did they know what to do with the script and did they know how to play off of each other. Some great one-liners in this movie. Tim Curry, oh my goodness. The very end of the movie, when Tim Curry is spelling it out for for everybody, and he is just bolting through all of this dialogue as fast as he can, running from room to room, and then somebody not catching it, and so he's having to explain it again. Tim Curry, holy cow, in this movie is so perfectly cast. I know because I was there. Like so much of my humor (laughs) nowadays, so much of what I do and how I mold myself on this podcast, I've realized as I like think inwardly comes from Clue. We did an episode where we talked about uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies. It was right around when Glass came out. And I did a quick summary of each one, you know, talking about the twist ending at the end of each. And I realized what I was trying to embody was that quick, just speedy and witty, dense, pithy stuff. Like that, that summary <laughs> that Tim Curry was giving us for the entire third act of Clue. Why? So why is it that you feel like you have seen this movie more than any other movie you've seen? I mean, I, the jokes are they're so, coming at you a mile an hour, too. And so even as an adult, there are things that I pick up on, lines that I've heard a million times and lines that I might even be able to quote that I'm just now getting for the first time. I oh, mean, yeah. <laughs> there's there's just such a density to it. And the acting is so well done and and. It looks pretty, too. For a movie that is a bottle episode, for it all taking place in one house, they make that New England mansion look terrifying and scary and inviting and and a place where multiple murders could happen all at once. Cole, I, too, have such fond memories of watching this movie growing up because every summer we would go to we would rent a hotel room across the street from the beach. It was called the Bay Shores Inn, uh, Newport Beach in California. And 
we every time we'd get there, I, I the first thing I would do is I would run to the lobby. I wanted to be there when my dad checked in because in the lobby, there was this gigantic bookcase filled with VHS tapes that you could check out and take to your room and watch. And every year, one of the VHSs that we would check out. For some reason, I remember seeing The Fly at the Bayshore's Inn as a little kid. I'm not sure how I was able to watch that like rated Jeff R Goldblum movie. Like Goldblum Fly? Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, we would also watch another one called Murder by Death, which is kind of like Clue, and we've talked about it on the show before. It does a similar thing, but much much more directed it's at a, being a parody on specific things yeah. and also more broad and also Agatha more, Christie, yeah. More British too. But we would always watch, every single year, we would watch Clue. And so I have such fond memories watching it, so much so that, of course, I own it on Blu-ray now. And you know this 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 uh, never-ending struggle that I seem to have, Cole, with movies that I really want to watch again and I really want to introduce my kids to them. But I recently asked my wife, oh, let's watch Clue. I think I've tried about two or three times now to convince her. And she says, nope. And I don't know. I don't know if it's because it's a little too adult. The, there, a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the subject matter is very adult. Yeah, they won't goes get right it for another 10 head. years. You know, exactly. It goes right over your head That's as a kid. But you just want to see – you want to see who who done it, right? And you want to see Tim Curry running around, and you want to hear people want some set of or a set of people trying to get into a room while the other set of the people are trying to get out. Let us in! Let us in! Let us out! Let us out! Um, do you have a favorite character, or do you have a favorite reveal of the three that are revealed at the end? There were there was one shot at Mister Body, one shot at the Sandalier, two shots at the door, and one shot at the Singing Telegram Girl. That's one plus one plus two plus one. Well, even <laughs> if you were right, it would be one plus two plus one plus one, not one plus one plus two plus one. But I think it's one plus two plus two plus one. How many shots are left? And then at the very end, there is one bullet left in the revolver because revolver – like this movie taught me things about the world. A revolver has six six uh, things that you can put in the little revolving thing. Yeah. I don't know anything about guns. Yeah. What I do know comes from the, the chamber? movie Clue. The chamber, sure. There's so, words for that. I, had, I know that there's six shots because of Clue. But you didn't you didn't answer my question. Which one of your favorite reveals is it's it? It's that one. It's it's Miss Scarlet. Oh, Miss Scarlet. Okay. Yep. I mean, who's the, your favorite character? The correct though? one is the last one. Oh where yeah. They had all done it, and Mr. Green, Michael being McKean's last line, the plant at the end. <laughs> like, even though men like him are normally called a fruit, uh, that's that's my favorite. Uh. And Mr. Green is my favorite character in all of Clue. Okay. Interesting. I can tell you who my favorite cousin was growing up because the part that she would always recite from this movie was da 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 and then I she, am your singing telegram. Yes, I loved it when she would recite that part. Um, you know, I as I've aged though, I think my favorite characters have tended to shift, as you know, is the case with your, as your preferences taste as you get older. But uh, yeah, I. I, of course, loved Professor Plum because I knew who Christopher Lloyd was, and I just think that is a funny character in general. Um, but Madeline Kahn, holy cow, you you can't top Madeline Kahn, in, especially in that scene. My sister would also frequently quote that scene, flames uh, on, the, on the side of my face. Breathing, b- breathing, <laughs> breathing flame. No, Professor Plum <laughs> has one of my favorite lines that I've grown to appreciate more as I've 
gotten older, talking about working with patients that are homicidal maniacs with delusions of grandeur. Uh, but now I work at the United Nations. <laughs> oh, so your work has not changed. Like, hey. <laughs> and then working for the United Nations Organization, World Health Organization, you know who is yes. the acronym that comes out of it. Nice. Everything about this movie is funny, and I, I maintain, because I watched it at such a young age and I've been able to enjoy it my whole life, that because of the physical comedy and speedy, naturally funny nature of what's happening, you can enjoy it at a young age. And then as you get to see more of the mastery and acting at work, like you're saying, like Madeline Kahn was not my favorite when I was a little kid, but as I've seen more just acting and grown to appreciate what it takes to be an actor like she is doing something amazing with clue and i've appreciated her more and the speedy like what they're actually saying i can hear and understand what's going on more it is a perfect comedy yeah and you know the other thing i really enjoyed as a kid and i'm i'm hopeful to have this in my dream home someday but as a kid in the board game and in the movie my favorite parts of the house were whatever rooms contained the secret passageways, right? So in the kitchen, there was a secret passageway. On the board, it's all the corner, it's all the corner rooms, right? And they do map out the building they do. basically there the same. There are mm-hmm. several secret passageways in the movie. The kitchen, the conservatory, the lounge, and the study. And I, I got to tell you, if I were to ever build my dream home, I would have to include a secret passageway. Um, d- I mean, but- I just love that in the billiard room, when you walk in, the back of the door is just more books. Like it's – Oh, yeah. It's, it's, that's probably the library. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, that's you're the right. library yeah. that they're walking into. And the library is just wall-to-wall books, including the back of the door. I will tell you, though, you know, as I get older, I get a little more practical. And if the secret – if all I could do as far as a secret passageway is concerned in a dream home is to put in one of those uh, laundry chutes – I think I'd be okay with that. I think that would count as my secret passageway <laughs> for my clothes. Home Alone is where I attach a laundry chute to where he's like oh, yeah. picking off the little action figures and they fall yes. down and behind. Well, Movies inform what we want out of our adult lives. And the goal of being an adult is just to use your discretionary income to capture those dreams. It's no surprise to me that this is a pick of yours, Cole, and that it's endured and has stood the test of time, even if it wasn't very popular when it came out. But it should be noted that I'm a little nervous about a remake that is coming out that is going to star Ryan Reynolds. It's going to be directed by Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman's attached. Which gives me Mm -hmm. a little hope because Jason Bateman was in a movie that was... Uh, a movie not based on a board game, but it was a movie about playing board games called Game Night. And it had some of the visual aspects of board games. Like the game into. of life at the very beginning, right? Yeah, how, how the little models are set up and they yes. zoom in and zoom out very well. When I saw that movie Game Night and I heard that Jason Bateman was going to direct this updated version of Clue, I was able to breathe a little easier and I'm sure Ryan Reynolds could play, you know, he could do well with that snappy, rapid fire pace See, what dialogue. I, what I want out of a sequel, especially a sequel or a remake to something that's amazing, is to try something different. Sure. Right? Oh, yeah. This is a movie that's based on a board game. It's not like they have a book that they have to be faithful to. You don't have to do exactly the same where a butler brings in these six different people and one of them kills Mr. Body and they try to – like you could do something entirely different. The plot can change entirely. You can bring different people in and out. There's different versions of the Clue board game you can even kind of pull more from 
to establish your scene, don't do a, a remake where Ryan Reynolds tries to do a Tim Curry. It's not going to work. That's right. There's only one Tim Curry. And that's so Tim Curry is a great barometer like of people's movie tastes. What do you know Tim Curry from? And my answer to that, despite all the amazing things he's been in, is Clue. I thought you were going to say It for a moment there. I mean, and that's that's just the <laughs> variety of what Tim Curry has done, right? Different people know Tim, Tim Curry from different things. But my iconic Tim Curry is Wadsworth the Butler in Clue the movie. Okay. Uh, that Clue movie is now in the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. And uh, I snuck, walked right into that you one. You snuck it in Walked on right that. through the secret passageway into that one, didn't I? Well, Cole, I am going to talk about a movie when we return that you had not seen prior to recording this episode, and I'm excited to hear what you think because this is one of my favorites as well as my wife's favorites, and she'll be tickled to know that I'm talking about the 2006 movie Stranger Than Fiction when we return here on Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. That is a clip from my pick for today's Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. And it is from the 2006 Stranger Than Fiction. And this is a movie directed by Mark Forster, who's had a really interesting career. If you look at his credits, they're kind of all over the place. To give you some perspective, he filmed this comedy dramedy, but he also uh, directed... A James Bond movie. The, the Daniel Craig one that I don't like. Spectre? No. Is that the worst James Quantum Bond? of Solace. Oh. Yes. Well, yeah. And uh, this, is a, this film has such an eclectic cast. We talked about great casts from the movie Clue. This one has people gathered together that you wouldn't necessarily put in the same movie. Um, you know, Dustin Hoffman, Emma Thompson, sure. In fact, they made another movie together that where there were these... These, uh, it was a romantic movie involving the two of them. But Will Ferrell, Maggie Gyllenhaal, uh, you've got Tony Hale from Arrested Development, you've got the two guys from all those Sonic fast food commercials, but then you've also got uh, Linda Hunt, who was on one of those CSI. You know, one of those procedural shows. She's an Academy Award winner. And Tom Hulse from in a in a one scene part. The Tom Hulse from Amadeus, one of my favorite movies of all time. And Queen Latifah as well. And as in Queen this. Latifah. Mm-hmm. It's a great, great cast. And we're gonna we're gonna get back to the cast and the characters here in just a minute. But let me give you the basic premise for this comedy drama fantasy. Okay, so there's an IRS agent named Harold Crick, which is a great character name, by the way, played by Will Ferrell, who suddenly finds himself the subject of narration that only he can hear. So it's narration that begins to affect his entire life from his work to his love interest and to his death, right? So imagine somebody, you know, is narrating a book. Maybe you're listening to an audiobook, 
But imagine... Or even narrating a movie. Like, it just seemed... The way that they they pull off the transition between, at the beginning, this voiceover just being a normal, great British voiceover work by Emma Thompson, right? And then all of a sudden, Will Ferrell stops. Wait, what? He can hear it, too. You can... You who said that Harold's counting his breath, his toothbrush strokes, and then everything just goes dead quiet. There was soundtrack behind everything, and then it's just quiet. And then Emma Thompson picks up a little bit, and he's like, "No, no, no, who's?" And you realize what kind of movie you're in. And that one big switch. I'm a huge fan of movies that can do that to you. And there's the great scene where he's trying to ignore this voice that he keeps hearing. He's out on the street waiting for the bus, and then the narrator says, "Little did he know that this." Small, simple act would lead to his uh, imminent death. Wait, what? Huh? (laughs) As people are around him not hearing the voice that he's hearing and thinking that he's crazy. And uh, this is Will Ferrell toned down extremely. This is, I mean, this is Will Ferrell showing a lot of restraint. And I want to talk about restraint here for a minute because the premise of this movie seems like such a high concept that you would think, okay, I know exactly what they're going to do with that. And, you know, what wacky shenanigans is he going to get up to now? But really, you, this is the type of high concept movie that I could see any number of movie studios just salivating over, right? Because it's such a cool premise. And yet, it's surprising to me that not only did this movie studio not take it in the way that you thought it would go, but also, I mean, it ended they, the way that I thought it was. Oh, go, OK. But, but they also allowed the filmmakers to do what they wanted to do with it, uh, which is, you know, maybe to their detriment a little, because also like Clue, this is not a movie that was a big money maker. And if you, you know, if you take into consideration marketing and all that, it kind of lost money. Right. Um, but I love it. It certainly didn't go in the way I originally thought it would. You know, it's there are parts where it's more serious and more dramatic and not it's not just an all and out comedy. This is a movie that has something to say. And what it has to say is a message that, to be fair, shows up in a lot of other movies, which is ultimately go and live your best life. You know, we control our own destiny. Yeah. Kind of like Groundhog Day, which Make we talked life about meaningful. recently. Right. So it's not the, the message of the movie isn't necessarily unique, but it's a message that is told in a very unique fashion with a great cast of characters. It does some things better than other movies and some things I think a little bit worse. And so I want to hmm. compare it to a couple different things that came out similarly in the mid 2000s. Again, I watched Stranger Than Fiction for the first time just this week in preparation for the show and the interconnectivity about it all, like the way his watch determines something and the way we get little glimpses of, you know, leading to that final heroic action that, you know, he may or may not have to take. You know, that's the drama of the movie. Uh, the way all these lives are interconnected and coming together in a in a climactic moment felt a lot better than what they did in the movie Crash that came out the same year and ended up winning Best Picture at the Oscars. Mm. The way it, threads come together. Yeah. I loved that. The meta narrative, though, seems like they were trying to piggyback off of the success 
of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This is hmm. this is a Charlie Kaufman movie. If Charlie Kaufman liked his protagonists at all, and honestly, the Emma Thompson <laughs> character that tries to kill everyone seems like a Charlie Kaufman, right? Like we're getting this this it's a meta narrative where it's commentary on the production of something. Reminds you a lot of adaptation. Uh, also, Eternal Sunshine because it's Jim Carrey, normally a comedic actor, doing something serious. Sure. Will Ferrell comedy doing something serious. It's not quite as great as what Eternal Sunshine does, and it's got a lot of those similarities, but it certainly does its own thing with it. I I just love the acting. I love the characters all the way down the line. And before I talk about the specific actors, I want to mention something really cool that uh, the uh, screenwriter did with these characters. So you'll notice that they have kind of, you know, either unusual or familiar-sounding character names, right? So uh, Will Ferrell plays Harold Crick. Maggie Gyllenhaal plays Anna Pascal. Uh, uh, Emma Thompson plays Karen Eiffel. Queen Latifah plays Penny Escher. And Robert, uh, not Robert De Niro, or not Robert Redford, but Dustin Hoffman plays (laughs) Jules Hilbert. Now, what I learned about these names, looking them up online, is that each of these characters' names are named after a famous scientist or like a scientifically influential artist. And so there's uh, Harold Crick is named after Francis Harry Compton Crick, Anna Pascal after Blaise uh, Pascal. Pascal's triangle. Gustav Eiffel. So pretty cool, right? Um, Let's talk about the actors themselves. We've already talked a little bit about Will Ferrell and a, a more restrained performance from him. Queen Latifah is great in a this no nonsense uh, literary assistant who really is just kind of an enforcer for editors to come in and really pressure the author into finishing their books. And just as she says, I've never missed a deadline and I've never had to go back to the publisher to ask for more time. She's the ringer. She's the one that they oh, call yeah. in when you need. And so Emma Thompson's behind on her and deadlines. She's, we got to send in Queen Latifah. She's intimidating in this movie. Uh, Queen, not Queen Latifah, Emma Thompson. I love all these sequences where she, the the part that she's blocked up on is she cannot figure out how to kill this character, Harold, Harold Crick, which turns out to be a good thing for Will Ferrell because it buys him a little bit of extra time, right? But she will go out in the city. She'll stand on top of a tall building. She'll go and uh, sit in the rain by a uh, an overpass. Again, filmmaking-wise, as she tries to imagine ways to mm-hmm. die, it's done really – because we see – You see Emma Thompson's character dying, dying yeah. right? And so uh, really kind of – yeah, really kind of takes you back there for a moment. Uh, Dustin, Ho- or Dustin Hoffman, I love his character because – He's hearing these things from the first time. By the way, uh, Will Ferrell is encouraged to go visit somebody that knows a thing or two about literature, which yeah, happens to be— First he goes be... to a psychologist because well, he first... thinks he's going crazy because he can hear voices. But he also goes to somebody like the the company a therapist. HR rep, Yeah, maybe. HR, somebody that you know Will Ferrell thinks is an idiot, and the guy, his solution is to give Will Ferrell a hug, right? That's where Tom Hulse comes in. Um, so then Linda Hunt, the the psychologist who keeps telling him, you've got schizophrenia, you've got schizophrenia. He's like, no, it's not. So do you have any other ideas? Is and she, schizophrenia. Yeah. And she said, well, then why don't you go see somebody that knows something about literature? So he finds out this this professor of literature who happens to be Dustin Hoffman. 
And I love how Dustin Hoffman is hearing this predicament all for the first time, and yet it doesn't phase him. He doesn't he doesn't, you know, treat him like he's crazy. He just he he just nonchalantly responds to all of these things that uh, that uh, Will Ferrell is saying. So much so that like Aaron Sorkin would be proud because all of his scenes are walk and talks, you know. He's a busy guy. He's not only is he a professor, he's working all these on different courses and everything, but he's also the volunteer lifeguard at the pool, right? And so I love his performance in this as well. Then you even get a little cameo from Kristen Chenoweth, who has a funny scene in the background. She's this host of this show, this talk show. And uh, if you, <laughs> she thinks that this book that Karen Eiffel or uh, not Karen, yeah, that Emma Thompson is writing is called Death and Texas. She's like, oh, I've been to, te- I'm from Texas. You're like, no, it's Death and Taxes, taxes. <laughs> um, just a funny little aside. What I think I love about this movie so much is that you are getting something a little different out of Will Ferrell. You are getting this sweet love story between Will Ferrell and Maggie G- Gyllenhaal, who is actually Will Ferrell's client bec- that he has to audit, who is purposely not paying her taxes because she wants to. She wants to. Up- well, wants this uprising, she's, which is funny she's, because she's a baker, and yeah, this is your favorite part. Cole. The name of the bakery is called. Uprising. She's paying the part of taxes that she's okay with paying. She just doesn't yeah. want to pay the part of the taxes that go towards foreign wars and all the ugly stuff. Right, right. So there's this love story, but I think the part that my wife loves the most is my wife is a CPA, and she loves that this is a movie about an auditor, right? So I think a we lot don't of don't get enough of those. A You're lot right. of the auditor humor that you get from this movie, like Will Ferrell says that he was engaged at one point. Uh, but uh, it was engaged to a fellow auditor who ran off with an actuary, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, she, I'm sure, gets a lot of that and appreciates that type of humor. But uh, it's just a really sweet story. And I think I think Emma Thompson kind of sums it up at the ending where she says something to the effect of, you know, the type of person that knows they're going to die and how they're going to die and they're okay with it and they're willing to go through with it, isn't that, isn't that the type of person that you want to keep around? Which I thought was a fun little message. But uh, this is a movie that, again, for me, when I first saw the trailer for this movie, you know, they're playing Don't Bring Me Down from ELO on the trailer. So you're thinking, oh, okay, this is going to be like a silly, fun movie. And there are some very funny moments in this movie, but there are also some very serious contemplative moments that you have. Because put yourself back in 2006, right? Will Ferrell, a a movie that has been shot down a couple times that I've suggested for maybe doing as my screen cleaning Hall of Fame pick (laughs) is Anchorman. Because it is that's peak (laughs) mid-2000s PG-13 Will Ferrell. And we had Talladega Nights, and he's going to get ready to do Step Brothers and other guys. And then there's just this funny little drama turn in the middle of that, in a movie that did not make near as much money as any of those comedies that he was a part of. So why, this is a high concept movie, it's got Will Ferrell in it, I thought the trailer was solid, great cast. I also, I I would confuse this movie for years in my mind with The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, because people Mm. describe it as being kind of a fun, whimsical tale. Again, it's a kind of comedic actor that's doing a kind of serious -er thing. Yeah, and go out and make your life your own type of thing. Yeah, big message kind of I much prefer this movie to The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. And I think I do, too, now that I've actually seen both. Why do you feel like this movie didn't do as well as it could have Based on all of the right elements, was it just not marketed correctly? Why? Why do you feel like it didn't do it so well? Well, I I think it just, at the end of the day, isn't 
quite good enough. You know, it's not like the perfect version of this message movie. Like I mentioned before, I think Eternal Sunshine came out a couple years before and we've seen this sort of a meta narrative before. And this is like the lower five version of that. Like it's still a really good movie, Hmm. but it's not prestigious, right? This isn't the kind of movie that's going to win awards. And if you're going to make a high concept good movie, it needs to be just a little bit more imaginative or more something, right? This is a perfectly great movie, and I would love to just turn it on on a random Thursday, but it's not something that I would remember or a lot of, like, the Academy people would remember as the best movie. You know, I just really love this movie. A a lot of what I gauge how well I liked a movie is based on the rewatchability factor, right? And to me, this movie has that rewatchability factor. It doesn't hurt that uh, my wife really likes it. And so, you know, I want to make my wife happy. Something so you can watch together. I'll watch together. I love the soundtrack so much so that I actually bought the soundtrack to this movie years and years ago. And funny, funnily enough, though, Cole, you came in to that, uh, into the segment with Whole Wide World, right? I had never heard that song before this movie. So this movie introduced me to not only that great song, but a bunch of other great songs that uh, I really, really enjoy. I want to share a couple of the fun behind-the-scenes, interesting little tidbits that I looked up That's why we do the show. Um, So you've heard of – there have been some movies, some musicals recently where – they're singing the songs in the moment, right? And it's this big revolutionary thing. And so the performances themselves are not so polished and pristine or, you know, you can tell that— Jeff's talking about Tom Hooper making the entire set quiet so that on Les right. Mis they can sing as they act. But they're doing—they did something similar on La La Land, right, where they're singing in the moment. And so it's more organic, more natural sounding, It's a pain right? to try to film, but sometimes <laughs> it works out kind of well. So something that they did similar, like, like you mentioned in Les Mis, what they did with Will Ferrell while they were filming, he wore an earpiece— that fed him Emma Thompson's narrative lines. It would have been even better if she was actually the one on the other end of that earpiece. So that in order to assist the other cast members in reacting more naturally to Will Ferrell's, you know, that well, huh? What? Yeah, he really was the what? only one that How could eminent. hear. How yeah. yeah, that it would that that's so cool and it's genius. I love the fact that they cast the two actors from. The Sonic fast food commercials, the same two guys that, you know, the guys that are having the conversation in the car about while I'm they're sitting sure there at Sonic. predates the Sonic commercials. Oh, no, no, no. No, there's no way. They, they took those guys because the, they were so popular. Sure? The Sonic commercials are not that old, are they? Oh, they're old. This was a 2006 movie. They're old because I remember seeing it saying, hey, that's the guy. Those are the guys from the Sonic commercials. And I saw this movie I trust in the you. theaters. Yeah, if you saw it at the time, I believe it. Okay. Another thing I thought was really cool was Dame Emma Thompson. She did not wear makeup for this movie. She's playing this just down on her luck writer's <laughs> blocked writer that's just in her own world so much. Very it's eccentric. Yeah. Pretty accurate. Goes along goes with on. it, but she's she's still she's a natural beauty, Cole, if you will. Yeah. And uh she's I, a movie star. It's and it's it's not a big a lot. The part of the reason I, I brought that up is because that is kind of a big theme or a big uh, a fad that you see going on right now with these celebrities taking pictures of themselves online without any makeup on, right? 
And how, how cool is it that we're doing this? So that was something way back in 2006, way before this even became a trend on social media, which I think is kind I of I mean, cool. before most of us were on social media. 2006 right. was maybe longer ago than I originally thought. I had some exposure with that too, Cole. I'm no stranger to, to fiction. <laughs> to having to wear makeup for, you know, being in plays in high school and in college and uh but when I did that little shoot on Encore on Disney Plus that you can see, I did an episode Jeff's of the show Jeff's a reality Encore. TV show, guys. Um, I They didn't have us wear any makeup either because they just wanted it to seem more real. So I was thankful for that, to not have to spend all that time like, okay, let me sit here while somebody puts makeup all over my face, which I, I never have liked. And I still don't like it when my wife is like, let me get those couple of loose or those stray eyebrows you've got going on there. And I'd sit there with the – anyway, I probably just – if I really wanted to make my wife happy, in addition to watching Stranger Things, I would just pluck my own eyebrows. Or and watching Stranger Than Fiction, which is what we're talking about. Did I say Stranger Things? Yeah. We yeah. always want to talk about Stranger Things. All I get right. it. <laughs> well, Cole, I, I'm surprised you didn't like this movie as much as I did because I feel like there's something in here for everybody. Great cast. Great script. Great execution, great soundtrack, and I just – I love the performances that are either, you know, quirky, uh, you know, in the case of Emma Thompson and, and Dustin Hoffman, or the ones that are more restrained like Will Ferrell, which up to this point was not something we were really used to. And and you're right. OK, so I didn't love Stranger Than Fiction. This isn't my pick for the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. It's Jeffrey's. But this is why we have a Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame in the first place is so that the movies that don't get talked about enough, even on our own show. I mean, Jeff and I every single week sit down and think, what do we want to like? We want to talk about 30 different movies. What are we going to talk about? And there's still some that we love that fall through the cracks. And so we do this so we can have an opportunity to gush about the ones that we really, really love, even that we don't get an excuse to talk about. So I love that you love Stranger Than Fiction. I love finding out the weird, off-the-beaten-path movies. You know, Clue, everyone knows about Clue, right? I'm surprised we haven't talked about it But they it probably more. haven't watched it in 10 years yeah, or so, so right? Yeah, so I tell you, hey, go back and watch it. It's one of my personal favorites. For you, that's Stranger Than Fiction. That's awesome. Absolutely. And I have, I am so grateful for this time that I had to talk in great length about this film because... Yeah, like we said, it didn't make the money that I thought it should have when it came out in the theaters. So it's one that we really want to shine a spotlight on. It's it's kind of our, like we said, it's like a, a, an episode length version of our segment Panning for Good, which we're actually going to explore in its its own segment when we return here on Screen Cleaning. We'll give you some Panning for Good about these two films, Clue and Stranger Than Fiction. This week's picks for our Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. Thanks for the setup. That's up next here on Screen Cleaning. Harold assumed his watch was simply on the fritz and never even considered that it might be trying to tell him something. In fact, Harold had never once paid attention to his watch other than to find out the time. And honestly, it drove his watch crazy. And so, on this particular Wednesday evening, as Harold waited for the bus, his watch suddenly stopped. Sorry, does anyone have the time? I got um, 6.18. Thanks. Thus, Harold's watch thrust him into the immitigable path of fate. Little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. 
What? What? Hey! Hello? What? Why? Why my dad? Hello? And then turn him over to the police. So everything is explained. Nothing's explained. We still don't know who killed him. But the point is, we've got to find out in the next 39 minutes before the police arrive. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning, where we've been talking about Clue the Movie and also Stranger Than Fiction. My favorite part in that is Mrs. Peacock's face, like, oh, everything's explained. And she's like, yup, yup, yup. And then Miss Scarlett says, nothing's explained. And she's like, nope, nope, nope. Like, she's just shaking her head. Every moment in that movie is hilarious. Everyone's Cole, great. You've helped me remember just how much I love that movie as well. And so I just wanted to take a minute and reflect upon the all all 10 of the films that have been duck, inducted into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. Uh, uh-huh. And uh, I wanted to see if you had to pick one favorite of all of them so far, of all 10 of these, mm-hmm. which one would it be? So to okay. recap, the very first one we did you chose Spider-Man 2, and I chose Lars and the Real Girl. And that was the Sam Raimi Spider-Man 2 with Doc Ock, Alfred Molina, Tobey yes. Maguire. And this is the Ryan Gosling starring Lars and the Real Girl. As opposed to the other one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then we did Dave, which was my pick, and Babe, which was your pick. Then uh, Rod Gustafson and I did Breach, which was his pick, and Matchstick Men, which was my pick. We did The Way, Way Back, which was our our former producer, Mickey Randall's pick, and then my pick that is still baffling to uh, Cole, which is The Island. A Michael Bay movie is in our Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. And then Clue and Stranger Than Fiction. Yeah, Clue's my favorite. Really? Yeah. Okay. But my favorite favorite movie that someone other than me picked was The Way, Way Back. The favorite one that I was introduced to for the first time. Oh, there you go. Was that little indie pick. You know... This is tough because I feel like it. the answer would be different depending on the mood I'm in or depending on the setting. If I'm going for a party movie that everybody can in, sit down and enjoy and laugh along with, I've got to go with Clue, right? That's the one I'm going to watch over and over and over again with a group of people. And you know what? Maybe, maybe that's my favorite overall because there's just nothing quite like Clue. If you think about it, Cole, these days, it's so very difficult to try to pull off that movie. And maybe you almost have to make a movie that's going to fail and that won't be appreciated until years later. Because I, I almost feel like if if a clue came out today and it was good or funny, I feel like it would almost be like a flavor of the month. Whereas Clue was a big failure and yet people years later were able to take a look back at it and appreciate it. And pick up on things that uh, they didn't notice the first time or two or three that they went to the movie theater and were hoping for a different ending. A theme that we've had at the end of every Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame is to talk about if the sequel would be better with The Rock. And so I'm going to ask the question I've done every single time. Jeffrey, would you love a Stranger Than Fiction 2, even Stranger, starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson? I, I would because I feel like his acting chops are getting to the point where... I think he could pull it off, and I kind of would like to see a more restrained Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's at that Will Ferrell point in his career where he needs a, a dramatic turn. The problem with him in a, and this type of a role, though, is that I would never buy Dwayne The Rock Johnson 
as this, you know, assuming it would have to go in a totally different direction because I couldn't see him as an IRS agent that's like squirrely and non-confrontational because he's enormous. There's I mean, no way it could be that type of a character. I've always been on the train that we need a Last Action Hero sequel with The Rock playing basically the <laughs> the Arnold Schwarzenegger role from that one. That would and that's, be a great That's a meta-commentary kind of a movie in this vein. Maybe it goes the reverse where The Rock thinks that he's in a book the whole time and he has to be told that he's not because mm. he's a larger-than-life kind of thing. So and you're going with mental illness there. he has to become just there. a person instead. Huh. Okay. I mean, that's... there can still be a supernatural fantasy. I'm just, you know, riffing. I mean, I guess they bit. kind of they kind of touch on the subject of mental illness in this because, you know, to everybody else, he would be considered crazy. But they don't. You don't really see too many people around him when he's hearing the voice and he acknowledges it. So most of the time, he's just confiding in Dustin Hoffman's character, who takes him very seriously him and seriously. doesn't treat him like he's crazy. Right. Right. Uh, the Rock, I definitely want cast in Ryan Reynolds and Jason Bateman's Clue because why not just have everyone in that movie? Hmm. If they were using if the same characters, anyway, though, what character would he Professor be? Plum, by far. Professor Plum? Yeah, he has yeah, to have a pipe and glasses. A pipe mm-hmm. and glasses and a... a cardigan. Yes, okay. <laughs> I could see that for sure. The Rock was born to be Christopher Lloyd's character. He would have to be because if you had him as the, the plant, as Mr. Green... And, you know, kind of being the wimp of the group, he would stick out like a sore thumb. People would know he was the plant. Or, no, 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 no. He's going to be Mr. Body. So he's the one that comes in <laughs> and is killed five minutes into the movie and then everyone else just carries on. I, I do think they'll take that in a different direction and wisely so because you cannot you cannot try to duplicate perfection, right? So – or you cannot try to do the same thing over and over and over I think over it's again. catching lightning in a bottle we're trying to do. And Thank we you. do it every single week because every week we do a panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. <laughs> I think there's an interesting story to be told in how they got the title for Stranger Than Fiction. It's an idiom that we've heard plenty of times and – it, it's interesting because by the end, um, it has a, an interesting turn. So anyway, Stranger Than Fiction, it's a Mark Twain quote, which means it may or may not be a Mark Twain quote because everything's attributed to Mark Wayne, Mark Twain, kind of like Abraham Lincoln sometimes. But the quote goes, why shouldn't truth be stranger than fiction? Fiction, after all, has to make sense. As a writer, he knows there's rules to stories. Like I love that. that. You know what's interesting? You, I know you didn't mean to kind of flub there, but when you said uh, Mark Wayne, I thought – Mark Wayne or Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Now, there's a mashup I'd like to see. Mark Twain, the Mark Twain story being played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yes. Anyway, the fictional book that Emma Thompson is trying to write in Stranger Than Fiction is going to be called Death and Taxes because of an old phrase that's attributed to Benjamin Franklin that goes, nothing in this world is said to be certain except for death and taxes. Except that it's not certain because by the end of the movie, Maggie Gyllenhaal is not paying her taxes and Will Ferrell does not die. We get the hero ending that he so well deserves. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. That is interesting. So in a movie about literary themes and a book character coming to life and an author, there's a couple literary elements to be noted about Stranger Than You Fiction. see, that's the level of detail that went into this movie. It's a good movie. Yeah. Even with the music, is there's a, a connection there with the music, too. So 
Well, Cole, I've had such a fun time reminiscing about the movie Clue and introducing you to the movie Stranger Than Fiction. Thank you, Jeffrey. So if you've never seen either one of these movies, I'd be surprised if you haven't seen Clue. But if you haven't seen Stranger Than Fiction, you certainly want to visit that or or discover that for the first time or revisit Clue with some friends or maybe some younger people in your home. Cole, is this a movie I should be showing to my kids? I'm pretty sure I was like four when I saw Clue for the first time. It's great for all ages, you know, depending on if your kids are ready for it. Okay, another two films inducted into the Screen Cleaning Hall of Fame. One more time. And that does it for Screen Cleaning today. And we will be back next week, just like we are each and every week, with the very best in entertainment Only the good stuff that we're going to shine a spotlight on. Until then, I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. We'll see you then. 